Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor LeCain. I'm excited to bring to you today's guest, one of the most brilliant and wise people on the planet today. Rian Eisler is one of the first people to review the whole history of humanity, including prehistory, and the whole of humanity, including both women and men, giving her a unique insight into what's happening today and what we can do to deal with the multiple challenges we face. Rian Eisler is internationally known for her groundbreaking contributions as a system scientist, futurist, and historian. She is author of three major books, The Chalice and the Blade, now in 57 US printings and 30 foreign editions, The Real Wealth of Nations, hailed by Nobel Peace Laureate Desmond Tutu as a template for the better world we have been so urgently seeking. And third book, Nurturing Our Humanity, co-authored with Douglas Fry, showing how we can build societies that support our great human capacities for consciousness, caring, and creativity, and debunking the idea that we are hardwired for selfishness, war, rape, and greed. Eisler's pioneering work offers new perspectives for constructing less violent and more egalitarian, gender balanced and sustainable future societies. Rian Eisler is president of the Center for Partnership Systems dedicated to research, education and building tools to construct economic and social systems that support human beings and the planet that sustains us. We met in the 1980s, but have not been in touch for many years until today. Rian Eisler, welcome to All Together Now. Pleasure to be with you again. So I'd like to start by uh, referencing the keynote address you gave recently to the world leaders at Davos about this as a time both of great challenge and great opportunity. Can you share with us what advice did you give to the world leaders? Well, my advice is that we need to focus on certainly the short term. Uh, we need to, in this country, get people out to vote for goodness sakes. This is essential. This is no time for apathy. But if we are to avoid regression after regression, um, we really also must focus on four cornerstones, on really building solid foundations so that domination systems, what in my world, I, in my work I call domination systems, don't keep rebuilding themselves. Whether they're uh, fascist on the right or whether they're leftist, uh, whether they're religious uh, like ISIS, uh, whether they're secular like Nazi Germany. I happen to have been born into one of these regressions. Uh, my parents and I had to flee from Nazi uh, Austria. And uh, really my passion for this, for this work is rooted, deeply rooted in those experiences, uh, that, which led me to questions that so many of us have asked. Why, when we humans have such an enormous capacity for consciousness, for caring, for creativity, why has there been so much insensitivity, cruelty, destructiveness? Does it have to be this way or are there alternatives? And if so, what are they? And many years later, of course, that was the impetus for my multidisciplinary cross-cultural transhistorical research. And the answer is a resounding yes. We do have alternatives, but we cannot see them looking through the conventional lenses, through the conventional worldview. And uh, that is really the basis for my work, uh, which as you said in your introduction, we have today uh, really an opportunity to make fundamental changes. And that is the shift from what I've identified as the configuration, the social configuration, of the domination system, be it Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, capitalist, socialist, uh, religious, secular, to a more equitable, sustainable, and caring partnership system. 
But as I said, and Einstein said it so well, he said, we cannot uh, really uh, address effectively our problems with the same consciousness, with the same thinking, with the same categories, really, that created them. Exactly right. And I, uh, I'm so happy that you are giving this message to the world leaders at Davos. And I know this comes both from your long, really lifelong inquiry and why, why are people so cruel to each other when we have that capacity for caring and compassion? And what is it that we can do that will help us move away from the cruelty and more towards the caring? Um, and you, as part of your inquiry, did an amazing thing, I think, that you did this review of the history of humanity, looking at all of history, including prehistory, and the whole of humanity, including women and men. And women have not been in the picture a lot of the time. So when you did that research, that's what led to your groundbreaking book that I still, you know, people I talk to say, oh, I'm interviewing Rian Eisler, and they go immediately, The Chalice and the Blade, <laughs> the great book, The Chalice and the Blade, where you talk about the two models of society that you see throughout history, partnership society and dominator society. Can you talk a little bit about those two models and how they kind of weave through human history? Certainly I can. And I also want to emphasize that this is whole systems analysis. This is whole systems research. We're really talking about interconnections of various components uh, and economic systems, how those are structured. As you mentioned, my book, The Real Wealth of Nations, actually was the subject of my Davos talk. Uh, how do we build a caring economics of partnerism mm -hmm. in which the most important, most valuable human work, caring for people starting at birth and caring for our natural life support systems is truly valued and truly rewarded. Uh, so I don't know if you want to start with that or whether you want me to go way back into the fact that we have the models for what we have to build. I can do either. Yeah, I'd like to talk about the models and particularly when I, I reread your book, The Chalice and the Blade recently, and I, I was so struck about how relevant it is today, particularly in this time of Trump and the rise of fascism and authoritarianism around the world, the rollback on women's rights, I'm like, oh my God, how can this be happening? And then when I reread your book, I went, this is the story of humanity has been this ebb and flow of women rise and then there's a backlash and then there's the dominators. So talk about the model, particularly Creed. I'm, I was so inspired by your description of the partnership model of society and creed and maybe share that with people who are not aware that that even ever existed. Well, this is a problem. Uh, we have been told stories that simply are not true. And these stories, not coincidentally, uh, well, you think of the cartoon that we think nothing of showing children before their brains, much less their critical faculties are formed, the caveman cartoon, right? In one hand, he's got a weapon, a club. The other hand, he's pulling a woman by the hair. And what's the message that injustice, violence, male dominance, that's how it always was, by implication, how it always will be. That is not a true story, but it is a story that supports what I call a domination social configuration. So if we actually look at the evidence, and I really invite people to look at the evidence and to see that it is incorporated into our education, into our conversation, our discourse, because as long as we have these false stories that it's impossible to create something better, that that's just how it is, that it's in our genes, uh, we're stuck. Uh, what we know from archeology, span what we know even from DNA studies today, what we know from mythology is that actually we humans 
in the very long span of our cultural evolution, which as you said, goes back to our prehistory, to many millennia, first of all, when we lived as foraging people, gathering, hunting people, and then early agricultural times, the early Neolithic so-called. We lived in societies that oriented more to the partnership side of what is always a partnership domination social scale, you know. But these were more egalitarian, uh, more gender balanced, as the archaeologist who excavated Chatalhuyak, Ian Harder, said in an article in the Scientific American, I was some surprise. These were societies where being born male or female did not affect one's status or mm -hmm. one's quality of life. Amazing. This is a very important point because we've been taught to think of anything connected with gender as just a women's issue, right? A secondary issue. It is actually a key social issue because we have inherited what I call a gendered system of values. And I, I'll get back to that. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, to continue with the configuration that we see in prehistory, and then also uh, fast forward trying to emerge today. This is the important thing. Mm -hmm. We don't have to start from square one. We have models of the configuration. Uh, take Chatalhuyak which is an early Neolithic site, the largest one ever excavated. It's in Anatolia, uh, in Turkey. And what we find there, first of all, are no signs of destruction through warfare for 1,000 years. Incredible. Well, what we're learning now is that war is at most five to 10,000 years old, at most. Mm -hmm. We're also learning that these were societies, as I said, uh, in which there was from the size of houses, from the grave goods, there were no signs of huge inequalities, which are characteristic of top-down domination system, whether it's man over man, man over woman, race over race, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and yes, this extends also to this very important thing to the relationship between women and men, and of course, everybody in between. Uh, the fact that today, gender issues like the Me Too movement, or uh, the fact that people who are not gender binary are beginning to be considered, these are all partnership trends. They're impossible in domination systems where you have very rigid gender stereotypes so that you can rank one over the other. And of course, these are societies which, as I said, were more peaceful. Not ideal, mm -hmm. but uh, as uh, uh, Douglas Fry, the art, art anthropologist Douglas Fry, writes in my latest book where I invited him, I'd been working on the book for seven years when I invited him to be my co-author because he's the world's authority on how we lived as foragers. And that was for millions of years. Mm -hmm. And he calls them the original partnership societies. Yeah, that's, you know, it's pretty amazing to think of that full thousand years without war and we can't even go a hundred years without war now. <laughs> but, um, and to think of that civilization on Crete that you write about in the Chalice and the Blade, you know, is at least a thousand years, maybe 1500 years, more egalitarian, more peaceful. Um, you know, nobody was living a bad life and there wasn't such a big gap between the top and the bottom. Um, so, I love that you talk about this because it is a model of what did exist. And it, it, it really shows that it's a bald-faced lie to think that humans are just inherently vicious and violent and geared toward warfare. That's actually not true. It so much depends on the system in which 
where uh, we're raised and what we're taught. Well, this is why my latest book, the book I mentioned, Nurturing Our Humanity, the subtitle is How Domination and Partnership Shape Our Brains, Lives, and Future. And it draws heavily from neuroscience. And the findings from neuroscience support this conclusion. Uh, for example, uh, we really need to understand that studies show that the so-called pleasure centers of our brains, they light up more when we share and care than when we dominate and win. However, and this is very, very important, and this is why one of the four cornerstones is childhood. We know from neuroscience that how, what children first experience and observe, especially in their first five years, shapes nothing less than the architecture of our brains. See, we've been told it's all genes, but that's again, a falsehood. The issue is gene expression. And we know mm -hmm. from neuroscience that that happens in interaction with our environment, which for humans is mostly cultural. And this is why the old categories, right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, really don't serve us uh, because think about it. First of all, there have been repressive, regressive, violent regimes in every one of these categories, okay? Mm -hmm. Also, and this is fundamental, uh, they marginalize or even ignore nothing less than the majority of humanity, women and children. And if you do that, well, then you can't see what neuroscience shows, which is now that really uh, the architecture of our brains is developed in interaction with our cultural, largely cultural environment by now, uh, and that it is very different depending on the degree of orientation to either end of the partnership domination scale. And I can't emphasize this enough because these cultures are human creations. Mm -hmm. uh, and this means that economics, politics, uh, religion, uh, education, technology, we can change them and move them in the partnership direction. But first we have to understand that the real struggle for our future is not right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern. It's between the domination and the partnership configuration between those of us who want, who know that we can create something better and those who are stuck literally in their brains. And one of the things I wanted to, there's so much to say, yeah. but one of the studies in Nurturing Our Humanity explains denial, you know, whether it's mm -hmm. election result denial or climate change denial or COVID-19 denial. Mm -hmm. It is that in the brains of people who describe themselves as very conservative, which in terms of this is domination oriented, okay? Because that's what they are. I mean, there's always enough money for prisons, mm -hmm. you know, for control, for weapons, for weapons, right, etc. But somehow there isn't enough money for caring for people or for nature. Okay, there, the part of our brains that helps us be resilient and adaptive to change is less developed, less developed. Hmm. And there's a study that was recently uh, done that is so fascinating. They, and, and it is prefigured by the way by earlier studies that did not use brain scans because this study used, used brain scans. Uh, Elsie Frankel Brunswick in her work on fascist people people who were very prejudiced and mm -hmm. you know, who would follow Hitler, for example, mm -hmm. found again that they, if you showed them a, a picture of a cat that becomes a dog or a dog that becomes a cat, took these people forever, forever to really see the difference. They clung to that first authority. You know, this is a dog, mm -hmm. not a cat. So we're talking about fundamentals and it is these fundamentals that we must address. Now, 
an important partnership trend is the trend toward what is today called authoritative and nonviolent parenting rather than authoritarian violent parenting. Uh, that is an enormously important partnership trend. Mm -hmm. And it was not coincidentally pioneered really uh, in nations, Northern European nations uh, that orient more to the partnership side, uh, which instituted the first law saying that physical discipline against children in families is against the law. And finally, in the United States, the, uh, 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 you know, the Association for Psychology uh, has published, this, I think it was last year, a paper saying, yes, spanking is harmful. Well, of course, spanking is harmful. It's violent. Uh, it's violent. And it's not coincidental to jump to Putin for a moment, who's a strong man. Mm -hmm. He's a poster child, really, like Trump. Right. For the partnership for the domination personality. Right. You know, partnership for them is not an alternative. It's, it, you either dominate or you're dominated. That's it. Uh, he reduced radically the penalty for family violence in ah. makes so sense. that it is much lower than the penalty for hurting or killing a stranger. You hurt or kill a woman or a child in your family, it is less. Because he gets the connection, he's able to connect the dots between an authoritarian, punitive, male-dominated, rigidly male-dominated family and an authoritarian, punitive, rigidly male-dominated state. Right, and it's one of those things that like we can be in a virtuous cycle going up, like the more education women get, the more income they can earn, the more income they have, the more respect they can have at home, then women are in a better position to help make other policy changes. But there can be that violent, uh, that negative downward spiral as women lose those rights you know, that you get more and more suppressed as we're witnessing with great astonishment and concern in the United States right now with the Supreme Court removing the protection of Roe v. Wade. But I just wanted to float an idea with you that I had about how important these models are you talk about of we have had partnership societies and we've had uh, egalitarian peaceful societies for a thousand, fifteen hundred years at a stretch. I thought, well, why don't we make a movie of that? Uh, because, you know, movies can be so compelling. I partly get this from my daughter, who she does love to read, but really movies are her thing. <laughs> so I've learned if you get a good movie, you can get the idea across better. And it imprints in a way that maybe a book doesn't. So why don't we do a movie about these egalitarian peaceful society, maybe it'll be ancient creed or whatever. And I have, um, I have a friend, a friend, I have a cousin who works in Hollywood. He lives in LA and I love him. He's a great guy. And I'm gonna send him your book. <laughs> and I'm gonna say, there's a movie here and you can be the one. And I think the hook into the LA crowd is to say, um, this can be the origin story of Wonder Woman. <laughs> Wonder love, Woman came from Crete. <laughs> I love that. But you know, speaking of Crete, there are so many wonderful visuals that I have used. Um, and our whole notion of power, in a sense, can be, but we need new words again, just like we need partnership and domination systems instead of these old categories, which really... I mean, they, they, a colleague of mine calls them weapons of mass distraction. <laughs> yes. segment our consciousness. Uh, we need new categories for power. Uh, and certainly the chalice and the blade are two symbols of power, aren't they? You know, yeah. blade domination system, the chalice partnership system, the power to take life, the power to give, nurture, illuminate life. But if you look at the way that power seems to have been exercised in Minoan Crete, there's a fresco called the procession fresco. And it's got a woman at the center 
with her arms raised in benediction, you know, like the Pope does, and a row of priests coming toward her, carrying uh, fruits and wine, but they're all on the same level, first of all. They are the same size. She is blessing them rather than frightening them. Now consider that we have no words for that distinction and I had to coin them. I called one a hierarchy of domination. You, you see it in later in history after the shift in the mainstream of civilization to a domination direction in the statues of Zeus. He's about 50 times bigger than the people groveling at the foot of his statue. And he carries both a thunderbolt and a sword. So if you didn't get it the first time, you get it the second time that the most important power is the power to inflict pain, mm -hmm. create fear. But a hierarchy of actualization is very different. Uh, it is the power that we read about today. And again, this is an important partnership trend in the corporate literature actually about empowering, the leader being empowering, right? That's a word that can't exist in a domination system. It makes no sense in a hierarchy of domination mm -hmm. but in a, or transparency. It doesn't exist in a domination system. These are trends, but we have to understand that we don't really want to lose hope because the struggle is going on for changing some of the fundamentals. And in a hierarchy of actualization, accountability, respect, benefit, don't just flow from the bottom up, they flow both ways. And right. these are really important distinctions because it isn't all flat. There are situations in which somebody has to make decisions, whether it's a parent or whether it's a teacher, or whether it's a manager, or whether it's a leader. It's a complete misunderstanding, or that if we only cooperate and there is no competition, all will be well. No, there is co cooperation in domination systems. Mm -hmm. Monopolies cooperate, cartels cooperate, <laughs> uh, gangs cooperate, invading armies cooperate. Mm -hmm. And it isn't all that there is no competition. There is competition, but I was reading about it, how it is, and, and people are beginning to talk about how they see an example of somebody excelling at something. Mm -hmm. And it spurs them on. It is the striving for excellence that animates competition in partnership rather than domination systems, not killing your opponent or putting your opponent out of business. You know, this dog-eat-dog -dog competition we hear about, of course, dogs don't eat dogs, but you get the picture. Right. False picture. Doesn't have to be that kind of competition. But the system rewards it. And this takes me back really to economics because we've got to change our economics. I mean, that is also one of the cornerstones. Right, exactly. Well, um, I'm kind of curious, uh, kind of what you see happening right now. You know, we've, you've outlined, I think, a brilliant analysis of human history as this kind of struggle between the partnership model is in ascendancy for a thousand or fifteen hundred years, and then the dominator model kind of comes in. The barbarians kind of take over and ruin that and then have the dominator system. And it kind of goes back and forth and obviously aspects of the partnership model keep resurfacing. You talk about in ancient Greece that even though it was more of a dominator model that aspects of the partnership models still emerge about women, the women, the Delphi Oracle is a woman. Um, so, I'm curious how you see our current moment, because it seems to me for the past, really in the, it was the mid 19th century, we had the first women's movement, 1848, Seneca Falls, and the uh, movement for women's right to vote, which they saw strategically 
you could get women the right to vote, they could then use that as leverage to get every other change that we needed. Um, <clears throat> we got the vote in 1920 here in the United States. Uh, and then uh, the modern women's movement emerging in the 1970s. I just went to a wonderful event at the Democratic Women's Club in DC two nights ago, celebrating the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which brought about more equality in education and equality for women in sports. So for 50 years, women, now we have more women getting degrees than men, college and PhDs. So, um, so we've got that ascendancy of women and yet, wow, what a backlash. Wow, we're getting Donald Trump and the mega Republicans and the attack on Roe v. Wade and uh, you know, there's like a th th that push again to push women back because authoritarians know if you want to rule authoritarian, you need to suppress the women because the women don't want that, generally speaking. But how do you see this playing out in the U.S. and the world at large right now? Well, I think that um, if you look at modern history using the partnership domination social scale, you see that all the, as you mentioned, uh, the movements, the progressive social movements, I mean, starting with the enlightenment so-called rights of man movement, challenging the so-called divinely ordained right of kings to rule, they've all challenged the same thing, a tradition of domination. Uh, the feminist movement, you've already elucidated on that one, the abolitionists and the civil rights, anti-colonial Black Lives Matter movements challenging another so-called divinely ordained right of a quote superior race to rule over inferior ones, all the way to the environmental movement challenging our once hallowed and idealized conquest and domination over nature. But, and this is really where it is very important to understand the configurations of the partnership and domination systems. What these movements have focused on is dismantling what I call the top of the domination pyramid. Mm -hmm. Politics and economics is conventionally defined. Mm -hmm. And they have left in place these four cornerstones of childhood. I, it is not coincidental, as I said, that Putin reduced the penalty for family violence or that if you really look at some of the so-called uh, fundamentalist, Christian fundamentalists, which are not Christian by any means, mm -hmm. uh, parenting guides, that they're all about showing a child that the parent's will is law, right? Teaching it through pain and fear. Th these are not coincidences. Uh, the cornerstone of gender. I really want to pause here because it isn't only that women in domination systems are taught to be the carers. You know, they're supposed to care for people starting at birth, for the sick, for the elderly, uh, keep a clean and healthy environment, or that for both Smith and Marx, because we have to get past capitalism and socialism. Mm -hmm. That is not the issue. For both of them, nature, if you look at Capitalist, first of all, they came out of early industrial times and were today in the 21st century, you know, the 1700s, the 1800s is when they, capitalism and socialism were born. And we're now in the 21st century post-industrial era. So they're antiquated, but they also, even though they challenged traditions of domination of top-down rule mm -hmm. in some respects, uh, they, perpetuated a key cornerstone of domination system, which is not only the subordination of women, but what I call a gendered system of values in which anything stereotypically, because it has nothing to do with anything inherent in women or men, stereotypically in domination systems, and we've been taught this, considered feminine, mm -hmm. like caring, caregiving, nonviolence is devalued. Now, if children see this in their families, 
and in their culture or subculture, they have a template for all in-group versus out-group thinking, whether it's the difference of race, whether it's the difference of religion, because they learn to associate difference, beginning with the difference in form between female and male, with either dominating or being dominated, with either superiority or inferiority, with either being served or serving. So we have to really understand again that gender is not just a women's issue, it's a key social and economic issue. Because consider, as I mentioned earlier in passing, that somehow uh, there's always money isn't there for prisons. So what's that? That's the dominator archetype of the punitive father, right? Mm -hmm. There's always money for weapons, for wars. That's the dominator archetype of the hero as warrior, as killer. And being a Holocaust survivor, I know that in a world where there are other regimes that orient even more to the domination side than, than the United States, because right now we can really see the struggle here in the United States. Um, we have to have some, some weapons, some armaments. We have to be able to defend ourselves. But it's in, it ridiculous. The, yeah, it's gone way beyond defending ourselves. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's completely crazy. It's an ideological, really dead end that we're in. And people sink only in terms of, but they're frightened. Mm -hmm. And fear keeps the domination. My book, Sacred Pleasure, deals with uh, pain and pleasure to a large extent. And domination systems are really held together by fear of pain. Mm -hmm. Whether it's pain in your family. We know from the ACES studies, the Adverse Childhood Experiences studies, how common even in the United States adverse childhood experiences are. And we don't have genital mutilation. We don't have child rights, you know, as a cultural norm. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have child labor as a cultural norm, but still, still, if you read the ACEs studies, the adverse childhood experiences studies, uh, it's shocking. But again, the fact that these things are surfacing, that we hear more about trauma, it's a partnership trend. We're looking at fundamentals mm -hmm. and domination systems are trauma factories, whether it's in domination oriented families where children are frightened, frightened by the very people and are, 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 are in pain because, you know, I'm hitting you for your own good, right? Right. The very people on whom they depend, on whom they depend for survival. And fast forward, they will vote for somebody like Trump. For a quote, strong man who says, I can solve your problems. But look at who's causing your problems. It's the out group, right? Completely crazy, completely nuts. These are not what's causing our problems. Our problems are systemic and we can change them. Right, absolutely. And um, I wanna circle back to, you were talking on the neuroscience saying we're not genetically determined, even though um, you know we know a lot about genes now, but it's not that if you have this gene, this is gonna happen. What you have is a probability or a possibility of this tendency depending on the environment, like what are you eating? What are you feeling? What do you do? Uh, so the, our very genes are not set in stone. They're not determinative of who we are or what happens to us in any way. I mean, Bruce Lipton's book um, blew me away on this, this point about uh, evolutionary biology, just how fluid our genes are and which way they go depends on how we think how we feel, what we eat, what we do. Um, and, and likewise, we don't we have- What we observe. It really depends what we are told, the stories we are told, which is the fourth yeah. cornerstone, story and language. So, no, I, I mean, in uh, Nurturing Our Humanity, one study among many uh, shows what you said 
in such a power. There is a gene that we know predisposes men who have it for to violence. But but the study showed that not all men with this gene are violent. Only those who in their early childhood were exposed to adverse childhood experiences, abandonment, mm -hmm. uh, you know, lots of violence, sexual, you know, sexual abuse, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, so we really have to understand, no, it isn't all the environment, but it certainly isn't all our genes. That, you know, we have various possibilities. That's why I started with the assumption that uh, we really have to look at gene expression. That much I knew. Right, exactly. So, uh, so much of this is not predetermined. It is choice, although it seems because we're so many people operate within a limited frame of the dominator model or whatever model they've been raised in. It's like they've got the blinders on and they can't see the bigger picture here. Um, but I think you've really done a brilliant analysis of this partnership model, dominator model, and how different aspects of that kind of move forward or recede in each individual and in each family and each society. Um, and I'm wondering now, uh, both at a societal level and at a personal level, what do you see as the immediate near-term actions we can take that can fortify and strengthen the partnership model to get us to a more egalitarian, more peaceful place. Uh, what, what can we do in our current circumstances? Well, as I said, we have to focus on both the short-term voting, for example, uh, influencing our legislators, influencing our business policy makers, because one of, but, but I, let me focus in my answer to your question on economics, mm -hmm. because there are really three steps. One, stop fighting about capitalism versus socialism. Remember that both came out of early industrial times, 1700s, the 1800s. We're now in the post-industrial knowledge service age. And remember, that for neither Smith nor Marx was nature, was there anything in their theory about caring for nature? In fact, their theories leave out the three life-sustaining sectors of the economy, the uh, natural economy, the volunteer community economy, and the household economy. It's a completely incomplete economic map. Moreover, for them, uh, caring for people uh, starting in childhood, for the sick, for the elderly. That was women's work, supposed to be done for free by a woman in a male-controlled household. So much so that even when Marx was writing, in most jurisdictions, a wife could not sue for injuries negligently inflicted on her. Only her husband could for loss of her services. We need to teach our history. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a, both a short-term and a long-term change. Mm -hmm. How can you connect the dots if most of what you are taught either marginalizes or ignores the majority of humanity, mm -hmm. women and children? You have to have a complete picture. The second thing is we have to really show that caring economics, the caring economics of partnerism proposed in my book, The Real Wealth of Nations, actually is economically beneficial. Uh, studies show, for example, that companies that are regularly in the Fortune 500 best companies to work for have a higher return to investors. Not that we don't need to change our charters so that people, planet, and stakeholders uh, and profit are all considered, we do. But even in terms of the conventional economic model, 
caring pays. And it pays for nations. Remember I mentioned some of the Northern European nations that pioneered uh, laws against physical discipline in children. They have moved more to the partnership side and they have not coincidentally much more of a caring policy that the government and the government, the national government, not coincidentally, is 50% female. So they have uh, policies, child care by really qualified people with good wages, government supported. It's an investment in what economists call high quality human capital, for goodness sake. Mm -hmm. Because we know from neuroscience that whether or not we have these resilient, uh, competent, creative people who can do more than just take or give orders, but who can solve problems, largely hinges on the so-called women's work of caring for children early on and caring for them in terms of their education. So they have a lot of really good jobs in education and being a teacher is very highly valued. Mm -hmm. They have generous paid parental leave for both women and men, for both mothers and fathers and everybody in between. Uh, and no, they're not socialist. They have a very healthy business economy precisely because they invest in caring for their people and caring for nature in lowering the carbon emissions. These are patterns, and it is not only that women are socialized for caring, and men are socialized in domination systems to not be like a woman at all costs, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it is that as the status of women rises, like 50% of women are, you know, of, of the parliament are female, men no longer feel it's such a threat to their status, to their quote, masculine identity, to also vote for caring policies. In other words, to embrace part of their humanity. And we have to understand that this is a configuration we're talking about. And not coincidentally, as I said, these nations pioneered, uh, you know, not hitting children in, in parenting, in families, but they also pioneered the first peace studies. These are not coincidences. Mm -hmm. These are configurations, they're patterns. And I invite our listeners and our viewers to really acquaint yourselves with this because many of you are already working, trying to create a more equitable, caring, mutually respectful partnership future, but you've been trying to do it within the old paradigm. Mm -hmm. And at every turn, the stories are going to contradict you, whether it's selfish genes or original sin, it doesn't matter. It's where they fight each other, but why? I don't know, because it's the same story. We're bad. We need to be rigidly controlled from the top, if necessarily violently controlled from the top, right? Punishment. I mean, these are false stories. And it's hard for us to, to really look at so much of what we're taught in our higher education. I mean, it was very hard for me. I woke up one day as if from a long, what I call the domination trance, you know, from a long <laughs> drug sleep to realize that so much of what I had been taught in all my years of so-called higher education had almost nothing by, about, or for people like me, women, and hardly anything about children. Right, I remember taking a history of art course at Yale and they went from prehistory up to modern architecture. Uh, history of Janssen was the book we used, big thick book. There was not a single artist attributed to a woman, nothing. It was, all, I was like, how is this possible? And of course, now we find out some of those cave drawings were by and about women. So. Um, but it wasn't acknowledged there. But it so it's it takes a while, I think, for the truth to seep in. Um, 
And there's a lot of opposition to it that I'll tell you something. I'll tell you a study that is fascinating done by an archeologist who looked at the fingerprints in the cave art of the Paleolithic. Mm-hmm. And he happened to know, and this is why interdisciplinary knowledge is so important, that the finger configurations of male and female hands differ. Oh, interesting. He, he found that if the, so many of the actual handprints were female. Interesting. So the whole notion about he painted, you know, the male artist, it's false. And we have the knowledge now. But you see, what we need is a coherent frame. And this is what the research that I'm describing provides. It provides a coherent frame. It isn't that people were necessarily uh, doing this on purpose. I mean, a lot of people really in domination, families in domination, economics, think that there are only two alternatives, you dominate or you are dominated. And Trump said it, he said it's all about domination. Right, absolutely. That's how he was raised and that's how he lived. And I think you're right, you mentioned kind of these false assumptions that were taught. People are bad, therefore we have to be strong, we have to put them in prison, you know, that whole thing. And I, I remember reading an analysis of, of right after, right around World War II, there was an earthquake in Alaska and someone from the Department of Defense sent a couple of people out. They were supposed to study how do people respond in times of crisis. And the people, they sent men and they sent them with guns because they thought, okay, it's an earthquake in Alaska. People are gonna be dog eat dog, as you mentioned. They're gonna be attacking each other, scavenging for food. So they prepare themselves, they land in Alaska and they get there and they realize like the Alaskans were self-organizing that some people were helping to organize the food, some were organizing the medical care, they were helping each other, they were other, they were giving, they were giving, they were giving each other. They just were as a community had come together how to deal with this crisis of, of the earthquake that happened and the guys were astonished and they thought, okay, well, maybe that's Alaska. But um, the Department of Defense study showed it time after time, when there is a crisis like that, the first impulse of most people is to help. How do I help you? I'll help pull you out of the rubble. I'll help get you medicine. I'll help you get some food. And I, you know that that is one of the biggest mind shifts I think we need to make. I I love the book. I'm sure you've seen it, Humankind, where he he takes head on this view of people are bad, very self-interested all about what they want. And then he says, no, there's actually very strong tendency among humans towards this helping, caring thing. And really so much of it depends on what are you taught and what's the system that you're operating in? Absolutely. Absolutely. I really want to return to nations like Finland, like Sweden, like mm-hmm. Denmark, uh, like Norway, because there is a mythos somehow that uh, they are more caring because they're small and homogeneous. Well, there are lots of small homogeneous cultures that are domination oriented. That's one thing, but the other thing, and that relates directly to what you're talking about, is that they proportionately to their national wealth invest more in NGOs that care for people they are not related to, people in Africa, people in Asia. So the problem is, yes, we humans have this empathic empathy is built into human evolution. But in domination systems are starting with the in-group of mankind and the female other as a model. We are taught to think in in in-group versus out-group terms. So people will have empathy for the in-group, but not for the out-group. These Mm -hmm. more partnership-oriented cultures where there is more uh, equality and more 
caring by both women and men in families, where uh, there is uh, this focus on nonviolence rather than violence. You know, people sometimes lose it. There is some violence in these societies, but it isn't necessary to maintain these rigid rankings, these top-down rankings of man over man, man over woman, race over race, etc. And they are also really very gender balanced. And these nations show that if you orient more to the partnership side, you also are not a prisoner of this in-group versus out-group thinking so much. So that exactly. you're able to invest in helping people you are certainly not related to in Africa, in Asia, etc. We really need to look at the whole picture. And exactly. it's very difficult because of our education. And this is very difficult for progressives because we tend to be educated people uh, often, and we are really indoctrinated that women and children are not part of important knowledge and truths, and they are. Right. Well, um, I want to underscore thing because I was educated, I have a degree in economics from Yale, and um, I just want to underscore one thing you said that is so important, that the economics I was taught totally missed both the value of caring and totally miss the, the value of nature. And if you don't have caring and you don't have nature, we die. That's just all there is to it. It's this phenomenal blind spot within our current economic education and economics as it's practiced to ignore the value of caring and to ignore the value of nature. And if we continue to ignore it, we're gonna die. So um, I love that you've put together a more full map of what the economy could be. I encourage our listeners to, uh, to read both your books. You really need to read both. The Real Wealth of Nations is talks about the partnership economy and how that all works. And The Chalice and the Blade, fascinating history of humanity, finally seeing the whole picture, including prehistory and including women. How about that? So um, we about to close here, but I know, uh, Rion, you've done such amazing work for decades on uh, exposing this partnership versus dominator model and trying to support the trends towards the partnership model and a coherent frame for really seeing what's happening in a, in a more full and honest way. I think it's, you're absolutely brilliant and you're doing among the most important work in the planet. So before we sign off, I want to just ask you to say a little bit, tell our listeners about the Center for Partnership Systems that you've set up and um, this whole work that you're doing in many levels to get this coherent framework and to help uh, encourage the partnership models in our country and our world. Well, thank you, Eleanor. Uh, I want to say that if you go to centerforpartnership.org, you will find it really so much in the way of resources, not only a real understanding of what is actually happening, but of our past, our present, and the possibilities for our future, you'll also find some tools. You will find, for one thing, that we are working on new metrics, new measures of economic health. Uh, in 2014, we launched the first uh, set of these, the social wealth economic indicators that show the economic, not just the environmental and the human value, but the economic value of the work of caring for people and caring for our natural life support systems. And we are now have a team of economists working to put them, because there are 52 indicators, which is a lot, uh, into an index of one or two indicators. We also, with a grant from the Ford Foundation, have a new 
tool, which is a partnership technology toolkit. Because AI, virtual reality, they're coming fast. And we need to really, really, really pay attention to whether we support the domination elements of our culture or whether we help accelerate the shift towards the partnership side from valuing diversity of all forms uh, to valuing caring, et cetera, et cetera. That's all the time we have for today. Rian Eisler, thank you so much for being with us.